Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm joined today by U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown. Prior to serving in the United States Senate, Senator Brown served as a United States representative for the 13th District. He was also Ohio's Secretary of State, a member of the Ohio General Assembly, and has taught in Ohio's public schools and at the Ohio State University. He's an Eagle Scout. And Senator Brown is also a native of Mansfield, Ohio, where he spent many summers working on his family's farm. So, Senator Brown... Welcome. Good. Thank you. And thank you for doing this. It means so much to so many families that you're turning your grief and uh, helping others. So thank you, Greg. Work of passion. Thank you. I can tell it is in talking to you. So the Chinese, let's dig right in. The Chinese are fueling America's fentanyl crisis. Traffickers purchase fentanyl, car fentanyl, and other key ingredients to make fentanyl from China, which uh, China doesn't regulate the sale. So you introduced a bill to stop that. Can you tell us a little bit about that bill? Yeah, the, uh, China China sends all kinds of products to this country, some legally, some illegally, some through the mail, some all kinds of licit and illicit ways. Uh, and in the case of fentanyl, it's particularly damaging to far, far, far too many, mostly young people in this country that – and we, we know fentanyl, as you've talked about many times, I know, Greg, fentanyl is, is – they say 50 times more toxic than other kind of opioids than, than the morphine, perhaps, and Oxycontin or Oxycodone or Percocet or any of them. So um, we, we know scientifically, our customs people know how to detect uh, fentanyl in and whether it's a small, whether it's a big shipment or a small package, they know how to detect it with the equipment that we have. The problem is we don't have enough of that equipment at the border. Uh, we haven't Put the resources out to be able to do that. So I, on this legislation, I mean, you always rely on others. I mean, I, I don't have the personal expertise in law enforcement or science to know precisely what to do here, but we worked with the customs and border people in the government. As I know, Senator Portman worked with um, people at the Postal Service to work on his legislation. Um, so, and they, they helped us write this so that if we can get it passed and all of these bills are bipartisan, there's no real partisanship in any of this, that we, we can scale up the, the, uh, inspections at the border, the detections at the border, and ultimately keeping fentanyl out of the, out of the country. I mean, it's, it's partly keeping it out. It's part, you know, the, this whole problem is so complicated as you've learned, 
um, and the depth of understanding that you have, um, in large part because of Sam's death and just how you've carried on what he would have wanted you to do, as you've said. Um, but we need to attack this in a lot of different ways. This is one of them. So according to an article in the Wall Street Journal, 25 grams of NPP, the key ingredient in fentanyl, can be purchased for just $87 from China today. Now, when combined with about $720 of other chemicals available here domestically, you can produce something that's valued over $800,000 worth of pills. Will imports of NPP and ANPP, key ingredients used to make fentanyl, be stopped with the passage of the Interdict Act? Yeah, uh, we think it will. I mean, it's a little bit, you know, staying a step ahead of the sheriff that the Chinese and scientists that have no morality about these things just are always working to develop new products. And the, the numbers you used, and I had not heard those numbers until recently, until we began to work on this, that you, um, you know, the ingredients don't cost much, put them together, the street value is just off the charts. And there's so much potential money made from this. But the, the, the good news in this, if there's any good news, is that the, um, the, the equipment that the, um, that the CBP, the, the, the border people, um, use uh, can detect each of these ingredients. So bring them in together or bring them in separately. We can detect them if we can get the chance to detect them at the border. And that, you know, that's the challenge. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's not building a wall between us and Mexico. It's just so many ways of bringing this in. And we just need to be able to, to, to use the, the, the scanning equipment, if you, if you will, that, that, that the technologies there, we need the resources to buy enough of them to put them at the border and, and detect these kinds of drugs coming in. But, uh, you know, it, it's again, it's a little bit like the, sh the step out of the sheriff because they're always trying to come up with new stuff. And this one is, is one that's particularly volatile, as you suggest. So this sounds like a tremendous piece of legislation. So can I put you on the spot? What are your prospects for passage? And well, I, yeah. I ask this question and, and timeline yeah. as well. And I ask the question just because we've got some challenges right now in terms of passing legislation. So yeah. what are our prospects here? Well, this is one that, I mean, we're, we're as, as we discussed this today, it's the week of the Supreme Court vote. And obviously that's very contentious. Big tax issues, budget issues, those where where the country's divided, the public's divided, the Congress is divided, and Congress is probably no more or less divided than the country on most issues. But on this, there is agreement. I mean, last in the last two years, uh, Senator Portman and I and our state have teamed up, as have senators and members of Congress in both parties. Rob and I are in different parties, uh, and, and as in other other parts of the country, people are teaming up. Because there is, again, there's no Republican or Democratic way to do this. Governor Kasich has come out with a pretty good proposal um, dealing with, uh, with limiting pain pill prescriptions, something we frankly should have done as a society way earlier because too many doctors have prescribed too many of these and too many pharmacists have filled them. And I don't point fingers, but we, we, we've not taken the responsibility, whether it's elected officials, whether it's um, pharmacists, whether it's doctors, whether it's hospitals, whatever, haven't taken the responsibility. Well, any of us, we should have years ago. But um, I think the chances are pretty good directly answering your question because there are a number of these proposals of different kinds of emphases. There's a lot of things to look at. You know, there's, there's everything from um, providing the dollars for, for treatment facilities. I mean, you know, and, and whether it's in Hudson or Twinsburg or Cleveland or Cincinnati – 
no community has the facilities to be able to scale up fast enough to take care of all the addiction treatment. We just don't because nobody thought it would come this fast and this hard. And we don't spend enough money on mental health issues in our country. We never have. And people haven't gotten the treatment they've needed on, in many cases, from alcohol to other kinds of drugs and now to opioid addiction. So, um, but I'm, I'm, I, I think that's changing. I'm seeing two years ago, we saw good bipartisan legislation, the CARE Act. Uh, we saw the 20th Century Cures, 21st Century Cures Act. Um, we're talking the administration about speeding up getting those dollars out the door for these treatment facilities and all over our state and all over our country. Um, so I, I'm optimistic. I, you ask about timing. I don't know. I don't know how fast it can be done. But I think the, the divisions and the dysfunction of the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House and, the, frankly, the White House, I don't think that dysfunction on all the other issues you read about has too much effect on this. I think this is something we can do because all of us have – all of us have heard far too many stories like Sam's and where families struggle. And I mean, that's one of the reasons I think that what happened in the House of Representatives not too long ago on the Affordable Care Act repeal, why it collapsed, the, the repeal effort, because in our state alone, 200,000 people are getting opioid treatment right now who have the Affordable Care Act, who have insurance from the Affordable Care Act. So we all realize that we can't, and, and again, Governor Kasich and Senator Portman and I are in the same place, don't don't repeal that. Um, those people having insurance for their treatment without replacing it with some, something else, and that's where the House fell short. So um, I, that's what makes me optimistic on, on solving as much as you can solve a problem this big, at least addressing it and making a big dent in it. Sure. And Medicaid expansion was a big part of that. Yeah, yeah Medicaid right? expansion. Yeah, we have – Ohio now has some – there are 900,000 people that have treatment or that have insurance now. Medicaid expansion was 700,000. Then there's the 25, 26-year-olds can stay on their parents' health plan. That's another 100,000. And then what are called the exchanges under the Affordable Care Act were set up for another 100,000. So 900,000 people have insurance now that didn't before the Affordable Care Act. At least 200,000, we think even more, are in some kind of treatment for opioid addiction and some tens of thousands others and other mental mental illness issues. Uh, so that's the importance of not repealing that. And I think people are coming to that conclusion yeah. increasingly. You mentioned Governor Kasich a little bit earlier. Yeah. Last Thursday, of course, he made a announcement of new legislation limiting pain pill prescriptions to no more than seven a seven-day supply for adults and five days for children. What further action can be taken to curb over-prescribing practices by physicians? Um, that that's a really hard question. I, I think the governor's made a good first step. Um, I want to see this. I think this will work. I think that um, part of it is the the medical associations and the pharmacies, pharmacy companies, uh, and the major distributors uh, all over the country um, taking more personal responsibility here. And I mean, I, I can preach that as a senator. Okay, big deal. But, um, you know, there, there, are, there are so, so much – you just hear far too many stories of someone goes in for a wisdom tooth, to, uh, wisdom tooth extraction and they get, you know, they get a month's supply of Oxycontin or Oxycodone. I mean, it's uh, – so part of that is, is doctors policing themselves, state medical associations doing the education and the punishment if, in fact, doctors are abusing it. Most doctors don't, but some doctors do just as a matter of course, not really thinking it's wrong. They're not trying to addict anybody. It's just kind of what they do, and we've just got to do a better job. I think the governor's action, though, um, I'm hopeful, Greg, will make 
sort of the medical associations and the groups that sort of work with doctors and hospitals and and pharmacies kind of rethink where they are. And just too, too many of these pills are on the street. I mean, just far too many. Should the practice of rating physicians on how well they relieve pain be done away with? Oh, that's a really hard question. Um, I know that concerns doctors. And I know we're in a society where we don't think we should have any pain. So if, you know, if I go to you and you're a physician and um, you won't give me enough pain medication to alleviate my my ankle injury, I go to another doctor that does, maybe I'm going to rate him higher. So I, I think, I don't know the answer to that. I think that's a really hard question, one we got to think about. Um, I don't want doctors to give more pain medication to the point of of too much um, to get a better rating from a patient. And I, ratings from patients matter, just like in schools, uh, you know, achievement tests and, and the tests we take uh, to make sure our for accountability in schools are good, but if you over-test and you overdo it, it's a problem. So I, I don't think we found that sweet spot. I, I, I don't have the medical expertise to know how to find it, but I think we need to be serious about it. And that's a, that's a really good question to continue to pose. I think part of the dialogue has to revolve around alternatives to opioids. Mm-hmm. And one program that we found over at uh, St. Joseph Healthcare in Patterson, New Jersey, is a program by the name of ALTO, and that stands for Alternatives to Opioids. What they've done is they've um, taught protocols to their 78 attending uh, uh, doctors in the ER. They taught these (laughs) protocols to them so that they could leave opioids as a last resort (laughs) in prescription. They've had this uh, in place for one year, and what's happened is they've reduced by 50% the opioids that are prescribed for pain in the ER. So it's programs like this that I'm hoping that we can get more discussion going on it to to kind of uh, soften, I guess, this urgency of rating just based upon, you know, pain and prescribing yes. opioids and having that be the go-to, but rather this expanded scope of options when it comes to relieving pain. Well, I like that. And I, I did not know about the program in Patterson, but that's the kind of thing that I would hope doctors are teaching one another and medical association is, is putting programs together to, to teach their doctors and particularly young doctors, but doctors generally. Because it, it, I mean, I, my dad was a family doctor and he didn't, he didn't really know much about treating pain. It wasn't something they taught them much. And um, I mean, he retired, he died, he died at 89, 15 years ago and retired in his early 70s. But um, we didn't, I mean, the, the stuff wasn't an issue back then, but I'm not sure that going through med schools teach very much about this. And I, I would be certain they're not teaching what you said they do in Patterson. And that's something that we could all learn from. Hopefully we bottle it and bring it back yeah, yeah, to Northeast yeah, Ohio. Yeah. Um, so let's move along to the President's Commission on Opioid Ab- yeah. Abuse. Brand new program, yeah. brand new commission. Comment on that. Yeah, I'm glad he's doing it. I think it's, um, it's uh, I, I hope coming with it means the president will get out and, and listen to people um, you know, it doesn't mean a big rally speech. It means sitting in a room and um, the way I, I've done with a number of, I've been a lot of places in my state and I gather 20 people and tell me what's going on and four or five of them talk about addiction and their neighbor or there's a friend in their church or their own family or themselves. And, and I think if the president hears those stories and really does listen, then we will see this go in the right direction. I, I mean, there needs to be a national effort. I think he should... Um, I'd love to see him visit places like your, your, your thing you talked about in New Jersey. 
Uh, and uh, I mean, I'm certainly willing to ask the White House to look at programs like that. But I also want him to see how disruptive this is in a family. And I mean, hearing you prior to the show talk about uh, talk about Sam, and you know the anguish still in your face. It's been two years. It will anguish. I assume will always be in your face. And um, I, I there was some. I mean, I. I I, I one family member not opioid addiction, but had some issues, and I remember it turns it can turn a family upside down. I mean, if there's one person a family that's troubled with something, um, it can you know the whole family the whole family dynamic changes. The other kids don't get it as much attention. All the things that happen in a family, and um, it's just something that we've got to get way more serious about. And I'm hoping the president's launching a better national effort, perhaps here. So I think that you bring up out a good point in terms of the family and, and listening to the family and, and a profound perspective on that. So does the president on his commission have families that have been profoundly affected by the opioid epidemic represented? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's still new. I don't know if we – I don't know if those people are appointed yet. Um, it's, you know, the president's – I mean, it's early administration, so they're not up and running on much of anything on – on you know on all cylinders yet, but um, I, I, I'd be shocked if he doesn't include some. I mean, he's, he shouldn't just have doctors and counselors and, and research scientists. He should have families that have been affected. He should have people who had addiction themselves and are still struggling with it. I mean, he, people need to hear the stories really from the inside. I mean, the people that have moved me on this haven't been the doctors. I mean, even even a hospital as good at St. St. Vincent's in Cleveland, which probably has the best wraparound program maybe in the Midwest. I did a roundtable then and had a discussion with all the people involved, but then I met with a couple of people that were um, in treatment, and one of them had just um, gone through detox, basically, and um, those those are the stories I remember, and those are the calls to action when you meet them, not the people that are trying to make them well, although they're obviously ex- extremely important. The recovery community, those that are successfully, you know, in in long-term recovery, they are so passionate about this cause. I couldn't agree with you more. And having them involved at the table, having a voice at the table, I I think it'll have a big impact. It just couldn't. It couldn't be successful without it. And and I, I, I one of the things that's amazed me about this is how many there there are there are a lot there are a lot of Gregs out there who are who are doing this in honor of their Sams. I mean, I, I really have seen this probably more on this than – I mean, you always hear when somebody oh, – I worked on an issue many years ago. Uh, uh, you may remember this happening. The Bluffton baseball team was taking a bus to spring training, the college baseball team, and the bus crashed in Atlanta and several players were killed and, and the driver and others. And I got to know the father of one of the players and he dedicated his life to bus safety and it took us five years and – Greyhound finally got on board and some others and buses are much, much, much safer now because of one father's action. Um, Coming to a senator, then I found a woman in Texas, a Republican senator who had a bus tragedy in her state and we worked this through. It took five years, but it was him honoring his son uh, that changed this. And and because of what he did, there there are young men and women and old men and women who have not died on buses. As a result, and they don't know it was this gentleman's work on behalf of his son. They just know they go ahead with their lives. And because of the work you're doing and others like you, there will be people that that never get addicted or if they're addicted, they get through it and have pretty normal lives. And they won't won't have you – they won't know they have you to thank, but they will. So – but you make a very interesting point there, Senator. 
It's not just, in this case, not just one person, but we've got a whole army of people, moms and dads out there that have lost loved ones to the opioid epidemic. And if we can figure out a way to harness that power, it'll be amazing what we can accomplish. And it's, it's such a broad, it's... It's of all races, of all classes, of both genders, of all ages. I mean, this isn't. This just doesn't hit inner city kids or Appalachian kids or suburban kids. It hits people of all ages everywhere, as you know, and you've you've met these parents as I have. Yeah. So, um, a really important aspect of this is educating parents, families, really anyone about the dangers of opioids and the dangers that they pose. And I don't know if you had an opportunity to see this yet, uh, but uh, I had the privilege and honor of uh, participating in a unbelievable campaign uh, introduction yesterday in Cleveland, and it's called Know the Risks. It it, uh, was prepared and, and put out by the Cuyahoga County, and this is just an amazing program that you're going to hear much more about Uh, But the whole concept is know the risks of opioids. And this is going to be a concerted effort to uh, educate people in Northeast Ohio and then throughout our country about the dangers of opioids. And so I left you a uh, kind of a pre-release copy here of the the, uh, presentation on that. And I think what you're going to find is this is a stop you in your tracks kind of presentation that they're going to be rolling out in the next couple of months. And I believe it's going to save some lives. So uh, uh, just my, my uh, hat is off to the, uh, the folks back in Cuyahoga County that put this program together. It's truly an amazing program, and I'm uh, excited to have just been a small part of announcing it yesterday. Thank you. I'm glad I'm looking through it. And one, yeah. first thing that jumped out at me is 80% of the global opioid supplies consumed in the United States yeah. were, what, 5% of the world's population and. Yeah. Tells you we have a problem, doesn't it? Yeah, it does in a big way. Thank you. This is thanks for the work you're doing. So, Senator, what are the most important points our listeners should know about how they can make a difference in the opioid epidemic? Yeah, I tell, tell your story. I think the most important things. I tell tell story tell your stories with your friends and your family, and um, particularly your peers. That people that might listen. You know, somebody your age or my age, somebody 20 is probably less like, likely to listen to than my daughter they would listen to so more. So I, I think so much of it is telling those stories. Certainly push your members of Congress, anybody listening. Senator Portman and I are working on this, but all, everybody is to some degree, but push them. But it's, it's all about the stories you tell, and you tell the stories about particularly a painful story and a story of, but a hopeful story of recovery and all the things that you can share that way. And that's what changes this. What final thoughts would you like to share with our listeners? Um, just, again, an, an effusive thank you for stepping up on behalf of your son. Um, and that's got to be the—I I, just—it's unimaginable to me. I have, I have four children and three girls and a boy all grown, five grandchildren. I, I can't imagine losing one of them to anything. And I've gone through some things, again, with some pretty difficult situation that didn't get that close to what happened to your son. But— um, I, I don't, I, I can't imagine, but I'm so appreciative that you're willing to stand up. Thank you, Senator. Sure. Really Thanks. appreciate it. Thanks. We've been visiting today with U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown, who's been a leader in Ohio and a leader in our country and is making a difference in the opioid epidemic. My name is Greg McNeil. 
Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things that are making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.